Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, April 26th. We begin with a look at this week's edition of The West Block. We catch up with guest host David Aiken, chief political correspondent for Global News. David brings us the latest on the federal conservative leadership race. As the war in Ukraine enters its third month, how prepared is Canada for the prospect of war? And how should we approach any changes to our military moving forward? We discuss with a professor of defense studies. It's National Volunteer Week. Did you know that 24 million Canadians give their time to volunteer causes on a regular basis? We speak with Megan Conway, President and CEO of Volunteer Canada, about the importance of volunteering and how her organization came up with this year's theme, Empathy in Action. And finally, more than three years after legalization, how much do you know about cannabis? Our on-air contributor, Dave McIver, takes a look at the many uses of cannabis and the busy retail marketing surrounding it in part one of a three-part series on Mornings with Sue and Andy. All sanctions are having impact, both economic and personal sanctions. As for economic sanctions, unfortunately, yes, people in Russia started to struggle from them. This is the consequence of the war that Putin launched without asking the people of Russia. Well, that was a clip from David Aiken's conversation with Anna Veduta, a close ally of jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, on this week's episode of The West Block. Global News chief political correspondent David Aiken was the guest host, and he joins us now. Hi, David. Hi, guys. How you doing? Excellent. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. So Anna Veduta went into more detail about the impact of these personal sanctions. What can you tell us about that? What did she say? Yeah, and just to let you let folks know uh, sort of what Anna does. Anna, as you mentioned, she was an ally of Alexei Navalny, who is essentially the de facto opposition leader in Russia. And for that reason, he's in jail, of course. And in fact, uh, Putin just had his jail term extended on some more trumped up charges. So Anna used to be his spokesperson while she was in Russia. She's now in Washington, and she's the vice president of a group called the uh, Anti-Corruption uh, uh, League, essentially, which is trying to raise awareness of what's going on in Russia and um and it was a really interesting conversation we had because we're trying to get a sense of what people in Russia, how they're experiencing this war. And as we know, Putin has such control over all media. People are going to jail just for carrying around a sign that says peace that Russians believe the Russians, you know, if you believe some polls, Russians support this particular special operation in Ukraine. And one of Anna's points and Navalny's points, he's been he's got a Twitter feed that's great, is that, you know, because people are going to jail for carrying around a sign that says peace, if a pollster phones them up and says, do you support this special opera in Ukraine, operation in Ukraine, uh, the answer is usually yes, because, you know, if somebody could be on the phone listening, who knows what. And so, uh, Anna was trying to say that, you know, there's been some discussion in the West and in, in Canada, the UK, the United States. Are these sanctions against oligarchs having any effect? Because can't they move their money around and hide? And her point was, yes, they are. And they're getting people talking uh, in Russia. The economic sanctions are getting people talking in Russia, and they're starting to question things. And so Navalny, again, from jail, has been saying this this information war is is as important as the actual war that's going on in Ukraine. That it's it's vital for the West to keep up the pressure, and that's what she's uh, that's her mission right now in Washington. It's it's great to have a voice like Anna Veduta, and mm-hmm. uh, perhaps when we draw comparisons to World War II, we might not have somebody so front row and center. But the other difference when it comes to the information piece, 
you know, David, that, that you're alluding to uh, as far as them, uh, you know, still being under somewhat of an iron curtain. Putin seems to not be able to block all uh, aspects of the Internet and social media. And this is where the millennials come in this time out. Right. Well, I mean, not just millennials, anybody with a phone. And it is kind of remarkable that one particular app on your phone uh, is still up and running and operational in Russia. And that is an app called Telegram. I use it to keep track of, uh, you know, some some uh, some channels, essentially, that provide some information about Ukraine. Um, if you if, you know, download it, put it on your phone, it's a relatively secure messaging app, kind of like WhatsApp or uh, or something along those lines, a signal. Anyways, Telegram is being used to get information out to Russians. You know, and one of the other things, too, is uh, last week, a, a Russian state media news outlet, a Russian state media news outlet, accidentally put the real cost of the war in people, yeah. Russians, on its website. 15,000 Russians killed. 15,000. Wow. And it was up for a couple of hours, and then they realized, oh, we're not supposed to be telling people this, and they took it down. But think about that. That's 50, the families of 15,000 Men and uh, who uh, presumably it's all men, maybe some women as well, who have been killed in Ukraine. And that means their moms, dads, aunts, uncles, brothers in Russia uh, have to account for their disappearance, their death. And I asked Anna about that, and she was saying that even still, even though you're, you know, a family member may have been killed in Ukraine, people are hesitant to talk about it because of the overwhelming state control propaganda from uh, from the Kremlin. And those numbers continuing to go up. As I can't believe we're into the third month of this war, David. Wow. Uh, let's change gears mm -hmm. a little bit, bring it closer to home. You also spoke on uh, the West Block um, about the, the race for the federal conservative leadership. W what do we know? Things are certainly heating up with the, the top contenders. Yeah, and, and the, I wanted to bring in sort of two leading lights in the conservative movement in Canada. And, uh, you know, I'm sure one very familiar to Albertans, and that's Brad Wall, the premier next door in Saskatchewan for so long. I don't know how many times I've asked Brad Wall, are you going to run for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada? Every time there's an opening, people say, Brad Wall would be great. Um, he, he doesn't want the job. He hasn't endorsed anybody in this race. The other individual, James Moore, um, he used to be a Harper-era cabinet minister, uh, was industry minister, heritage minister from B.C., um, he, too, a lot of people have said to him over the years, why don't you run? He's only, I think, 47 years old right now, uh, bilingual. Why don't you run for the job? He doesn't want it either, and he's not endorsed anybody. But the common denominator for Brad Wall's political career and James Moore's career in the Harper Conservatives is they were the, the, the parties they belong to, both conservative parties, the Saskatchewan Party and the amalgam of uh, Saskatchewan liberals and Saskatchewan PCers, um, and the Harper Conservatives, of course, Canadian Alliance and the PC, they built coalitions. And when conservative, conservative parties build coalitions of voters, that's when they win power. Alberta's a fantastic example. When the PC party breaks into its constituents' parts, wild rose into UCP, and now we're seeing turmoil in the UCP, things mm -hmm. may break up. When those conservative voters disappear into their own bases, that's when New Democrats in Alberta, liberals in Ottawa, etc., can can win and so this leadership race brad both brad wall and james moore had some interesting things to say about what they're looking for coming out of this leadership leadership race whoever wins 
the party needs to be in a stronger position to compete for power, and that means the party needs to be in a position to hold this coalition together. It's not easy. And that's why Brad Wald is one of the most successful politicians, I think, in the country, because he built the Saskatchewan party, held it together for as long as he did, and his successor, Scott Moe, has continued that legacy, and the SAS party is as dominant as ever in, in Saskatchewan. And it makes you marvel even more so, I suppose, at the accomplishment of Stephen Harper holding together that conservative coalition as long as he did, keeping it in power for 10 years. It's not easy. Andrew Scheer couldn't do it. Aaron O'Toole couldn't do it. Can Pierre Poliev do it? Can Jean Charest do it? That is one of the big questions for this particular race. Lots of questions in a dynamic time. We'll look forward to watching it unfold over the coming weeks and months. Thank you so much for your time, David. No problem. Have a great morning, guys. Thank you. It's David Aiken, Global's chief political correspondent and host this week of the West Block. Is Canada still seen as a peacekeeping nation? And are we prepared for the prospect of a global conflict and perhaps changing our role globally? With Insight, we are joined by Paul Mitchell, professor, Department of Defence Studies at the Canadian Forces College. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning to you. Well, let's kick it off. Are we still seen globally as a peacekeeping nation or, or has that changed? I think, you know, when, when you, if you were to ask anybody about what the Canadian military does on a global basis, uh, most international observers would say peacekeeping. Uh, I think that's been our, our role. Uh, it's, it's done the bed, bread and butter for the Army, uh, you know, since, uh, since the 1960s. Uh, but the question is, is whether there is any peace to keep uh, and whether the UN is still itself in, in that kind of role. Um, we've seen... Uh, President Zelensky being quite critical of the uh, Security Council uh, in the failure of uh, the United Nations to keep peace in 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 his country, uh, and it, it really begs the question as to whether or not uh, the Security Council is still going to be uh, looking at these kinds of missions uh, in in the future. And the other thing I would say is th- those missions that that do exist are not the sort of peaceful types of missions that we came to expect in places like Cyprus. Uh, they are increasingly dangerous counterinsurgency type missions like those that we encountered in Mali. Um, Paul, I'm curious, does Canada try to be too much uh, of a, a lot? Like, do we, do we try to be too many things as opposed to sort of focusing on one thing? I think that, that the challenge right now is that our military has shrunk uh, so significantly since the 1960s uh, that really they're uh, having to look at fundamental uh, capabilities uh, and see whether these things are still supportable in the long term. Uh, For example, in in the Army, we only have about 80 tanks, 80 Leopard 2 tanks left. Uh, We have just over uh, uh, 40 artillery pieces, four of which we just sent to the Ukrainians. Uh, the the M777s I'm referring to here, um, and and uh, you know you really have to wonder you know what is our army for in the kind of current uh, context that we see in the Ukraine. Uh, the Russians are basically going through a, about a battalion group every day uh, in terms of casualties and and equipment losses, uh, and that would be basically what we've committed to Latvia, for example. So, you know, we have to think hard, I think, about what it is we intend our military to do when we send it overseas. You know, Paul, when we look at a new direction or perhaps uh, changing the identity of the Canadian military, 
Is there an example somewhere on Earth of another country, maybe like-sized as far as population and uh, budgetary constraints that, that we can look at as a good example and a path we should maybe take as a nation? So, you know, it's really hard to compare countries because everybody faces different contexts geographically, uh, politically, uh, economically, and that sort of thing. Canada likes to compare itself with Australia, for example, but Australia is out there all by itself. It's, uh, it's surrounded, uh, uh, you know, it's very far away from, from, uh, from its, its principal allies like the United Kingdom, the United States, and Canada itself. Um, and, and so it puts a lot of effort, a lot more effort into its military than, say, uh, say Canada does. Uh, rather, the, the, the country that I think we're most like in, in some ways is New Zealand. Uh, they always say that, that the Kiwis are the dagger pointed at the heart of nowhere. Canada is surrounded on three sides by oceans, and it has a friendly superpower to the south. And that really makes us like a gated community, security speaking. Uh, we haven't had to think about our military in any serious way because we are isolated geographically. Uh, but that's not necessarily something that's going to persist in the long term. Uh, one can't even count that the United States uh, is going to remain as friendly as it is into the future. We've already seen indications of a certain amount of hostility directed at Canada from the United States in an economic sense. Uh, I, I shudder at the thought of whether that might ultimately, and I'm talking decades from now, uh, transform itself into a much more sec- serious security uh, condition. Yeah, so on that note, Professor, then, you know, we are surrounded by water, so it does help us, but is ultimately, is Canada prepared should there be a global conflict? So, as I said, I don't think anybody's really prepared for a global conflict. The rates uh, of equipment losses and casualties uh, that are going on in Ukraine right now are World War II levels. And one has to remember that our, in, uh, our, our industrial bases have transformed themselves since World War II. In World War II, we were able to repurpose car manufacturing and other types of industries to support uh, military production, retooling our factories and, and our businesses to, on, to put us onto a global war context would be a significant economic wrench uh, and, and cause a, 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 a considerable amount of chaos. When, when you look at, again, the small size of the Canadian military, uh, we basically do not have the ability right now to support the kind of expenditures that are going on in, in Ukraine. Now, we have time to actually sort this out because of the isolation afforded by geography. But that's the thing, is we have to think very carefully about what it is we want to achieve on an international stage and design our military around those types of conditions. We can't just throw money at it and expect it to, to, to perform in the way that we hope it will when the chips get played. Interesting conversation. We appreciate your time, Professor. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That is Professor Paul Mitchell from the Department of Defense Studies at Canadian Forces College. Who would have thought that in 2022 we'd be talking about the role of Canadian military because we would have thought that, hey, we're, we're fine with peacekeeping. That's what we need in the world. Oh, how things can change on a dime. So we'll continue that conversation, I'm sure, in the coming weeks and months. 24 million. That's the number of Canadians volunteering to make a difference in their communities. 
Joining us to discuss the happenings for National Volunteer Week, which happens to be this week, and the impact volunteers have in our nation is Dr. Megan Conway, President and CEO of Volunteer Canada. Good morning to you, Megan. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for being here. This year's theme, volunteering is empathy in action. So tell us what that means to you and how Canadians can participate. Well, I think empathy is really about seeing other people for the circumstances and the situations that they might be in. And it's also about seeing um, what's happening in your community or um, around you for what it is and not having sympathy, but really connecting in a way that uh, recognizes that true experience and um, finding ways to actually jump in and act. Uh, We know that there's 82% of Albertans who volunteer either formally or informally, which is actually higher than the national average. So way to go. Um, And and it contributes $5.5 billion to the GDP. So it has a huge amount of impact across the economy in Alberta. Wow. Okay. So uh, sorry, I didn't mean to jump in there, Megan. No, Finish your great. thought. I'm sorry. No, that's great. I was just going to say it's it, National Volunteer Week uh, is a great way to thank volunteers in the communities across Alberta and uh, to really recognize the contributions of individual volunteers. You talked about formal and infor- informal mm-hmm. volunteering. Can you explain the difference? For sure. So I would say formal volunteering is where someone like um, yourself, Sue or Andy, might uh, go to a charity or a nonprofit and um, formally volunteer within that organization or within an organizational cause that that they need help with, whether it's at a food bank or as a a white hat volunteer um, or other kinds of examples across your community. That's, you know, there's a more formal process and a set number of hours, for example, informal volunteering. You know, I don't know about you, but throughout the pandemic, I think many of us have uh, helped out our neighbors. We've shoveled, you know, driveways. We've maybe made meals for our, our family. Those are examples of informal volunteering. And I think that we're really seeing are, is on the rise um, lately. Let's break down the fact that volunteering, that's the aim of your organization. We know and you chronicled how it's even good for the economy. But what does in our country prevent people from volunteering? What are some of the barriers in place that would stop somebody from giving their time, Megan? Yeah, well, I think um, sometimes people see the costs associated with a police check, which are real costs uh, as a as a barrier. Um, and often, you know, we need a police check, but there are other ways that municipalities or uh, provincial governments can address some of those costs and take that burden off of individual volunteers. We're also seeing um, Propellus, which is... Um, Calgary's Volunteer Centre is really looking at some of the barriers that um, diverse populations might face to, to volunteering. So I think increasingly one of the, the challenges is that sometimes diverse populations may not use the word volunteering. They might use the word mentorship, for instance, to describe how they give back or how they help out. So sometimes language can get in the way unnecessarily. Um, but I think increasingly we need to find solutions to address some of those barriers collectively um, and, and figure out ways we can get more people involved in, in all sorts of ways. So what would your message be, Megan, as people are listening and thinking, maybe volunteerism is for me. What do I need to know? Because I, I really do believe it's almost, if not as good for the giver of their time to those who receive it. Totally. I think that's exactly it, uh, Sue. I think, um, you know, really one of the things I encourage everyone to think about is to pay attention to the, the causes or the issues or the circumstances that you see around you. What really gets you um, interested or motivating, uh, motivated in paying attention to you know, the challenges that you see in your local neighborhood or in your community? Figure out ways that you can learn more about those causes or those issues. So really get involved in terms of information gathering as a first step. 
and then make some connections. I think, I don't know about you, but throughout the pandemic, I found myself stuck at home more and um, maybe a little bit more disconnected. I think that opportunity to reach out, gather information, make a connection, make a relationship with the individual at that organization or the charity and find out ways that you might give your time or your talent back. I think we often think of volunteering as something really big. I think it can be as simple as, um, you know, helping to clean up garbage on Earth Day, for instance, in our local mm-hmm. neighborhood. It doesn't have to be um, overwhelming or huge. It can be small acts that really over the long term make a huge contribution. You know, what a great opportunity to, to shine the spotlight, a chance to help your friends, family and neighbors as well along the way. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. That is uh, Dr. Megan Conway, President and CEO of Volunteer Canada. More online empathyinaction.ca. Hard to believe uh, that it's been more than three years since legalization. This morning and uh, going ahead over the next week or so, we're on-air contributor Dave McIver working on a new three-part series for us focused on cannabis. In our first installment, Dave lasers in on what we need to know about some products on the market now. Cannabis. Weed! Whatever slang term you use, cannabis has been part of our lives in Canada legally for over three years now. And the scene looks a lot different than it did on the first day back in October. Yeah, you got your indicas and your sativas and your hybrid flowers. Then along came your CBD and eventually your edibles. Over a three-part series, I'm going to look at some different topics. Later this week, we'll talk addiction and some of the perils that can come with the usage. And next week, we'll look at its evolution in pop culture. But today... Let's talk about what we need to know about what's out there now. When you take a look at, you know, presumably the origin story of cannabis is what we call land race strains. So these are strains that are native to different regions of the world, mostly in Asia, uh, the Himalayas, other kind of exotic locations. Um, today, we have very few land race strains, you know, actually available uh, in, in our stores because you know, today all, through through breeding um, and many, many years of, of um, you know, discovering uh new new phenotypes of different strains etc um you know almost all of our all of the plants that uh, that make their way into a cannabis retail store in north america are are hybrids of some sort or another thanks for the brief origin story on strains andy palalis chief revenue officer at high tide inc high tide has been in the cannabis industry since 2009 we have our indicas our sativas and our hybrids andy if we're smoking these strains let's talk effects starting with indicas promotes deep kind of relaxing sleep inducing kind of effects right the the the, how they call what they call it is couch lock you're going to be glued to the couch and then you know most folks will look at a sativa strain or sativa effects as um, euphoric and upbeat and more energizing and and less likely to slow you down and glue you to the couch Um, you know practically speaking there's there's not always a ton of truth to either of those uh, um, uh, to either of those labels, as cannabis affects people differently, first and foremost, and secondarily, as we talked about previously, almost all cannabis strains are hybrids of one one form or another. There's no pure indica or sativa on anybody's shelves in Canada here. So, you know, um, it's a useful way for folks to orient themselves in a cannabis store, especially if they want to start kind of uh, uh, with it with a general feeling they're looking for. But if you look at it from indica sativa, generally speaking, if you walk into a a, um, a cannabis store in Calgary, you're going to see a table that's hybrid as well. So you're going to see indica, you're going to see sativa. Hybrid is meant to be somewhere in the middle. 
One year after the flower form of cannabis became legal, edibles hit the market. Edibles are made of distillate, which is cannabis that has completely stripped out all of the terpenes and um, you know other uh, uh, elements and cannabinoids other than THC. So they've distilled the THC, which is THC is the psychoactive ingredient that creates a high in cannabis, and then they put it into edibles. Strictly speaking, because it's just THC that's been stripped down into distillate and put into edibles, you know, pr probably not a lot of uh, evidence to the idea of one producing a different effect than the other. However, I've got great bud tenders and great folks who are out there saying, you know, this sativa gummy or that indica gummy, and this made me feel this way. And that's just another example of how cannabis can be a very unique and most specifically individual experience. And finally, we have CBD. CBD is fascinating. It's one of the many cannabinoids found in, in cannabis. And there are many studies that suggest CBD may alter the effects of other natural chemicals in our bodies. So um, there's a possibility that CBD uh, uh, can somehow modify serotonin, which modulates your mood and your stress. It, there, there's a possibility that CBD can alter the effects of adenosine, which impacts you know your sleeping and waking cycle. Um, vanilloid, which which contributes to pain modulation. So, you know, th those those elements can be potentially research is being done about whether or not they can modify uh, those 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 different chemicals in your body. So, generally speaking, folks who are coming in and you know uh, well researched beforehand and had already decided they were looking for a CBD product, who were coming to buy those capsules or oils. Nowadays, though, there's many products. There's CBD flour. So this is the same as dried flour, although it contains very small amounts of THC. With uh, and it's been bred for that specific purpose um, and, uh, you know, receive the benefits of however you however you perceive them of, of CBD without, you know, a psychoactive high or a very minimal psychoactive high. You can also get CBD in edibles. Many edibles are, are jamming uh, uh, themselves full of CBD because there's a much higher limit on the amount of CBD you can have in an edible versus THC. So lots of CBD going into edibles right now. Um, you know, and, and so when, when you take a look, a look at kind of where CBD is available now. It's definitely also very much available in a recreational context as well. And the reason for that is also because some people, research is being done, of course, again, but some people do believe that CBD can kind of temper some of the uh, effects of THC. Um, so although more research is required, it's possible that in some combination, CBD with THC could reduce some of the psychoactive effects of THC uh, or curb some of the more unwanted effects. For example, overconsumption of THC can sometimes lead to anxiety or paranoia. Um, and CBD can is looked at by some as an, op an option or a, a product that may help um, temper some of that. Later this week, we'll take a look at the addictive side of cannabis, as well as how it affects our health. For 770 CHQR, I'm Dave McIver. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.